Welcome to Cartoonist Kayfabe. My name is Ed Piscor. I'm Jim Rugg. We're going to be taking a look at uh, Cerebus issue number one and Cerebus issue 300 by way of the uh, trade paperback. But before we do that, I want to invite you guys to like, follow, and subscribe to the YouTube channel. Uh, it helps uh, if you hit the bell. It helps mitigate the kayfabe effect because we let you know uh, when these new videos come out so that uh, if you see a comic that uh, you might like that we're talking about, you're the first one to go to eBay, you're the first one to go to Amazon or your local comic shop to scoop up these comics. And if you watch these videos to the end, what happens is that helps us out by goosing the algorithm, pushes our video to other comics-loving YouTube uh, viewers who aren't yet familiar with the Cartoonist Kayfabe uh, YouTube channel. And we've been growing our subscriber numbers that way. So, Jimmy, uh, one of the things that is very important to me as a creator, man. Like I, I need, I need inspiration every day. Like you're fighting nature to uh, sit down and and just look at a blank white piece of paper and draw something and spend all your time by yourself doing that. I need to know that uh, you work, you work at the stuff long enough, man. Your your craft and your facility is going to get stronger and stronger. And some of my favorite books are like the comic strip reprints where I get to see day one of Chester Gold's Dick Tracy and the final day. Uh, maybe you don't want to look at like that. Maybe uh, a good sweet spot would be in the middle somewhere. That's right. You dig what I'm saying? Uh, the Complete Crumb Comics is important to me. And another set of comics that, that uh, in terms of craft and facility that uh, is an inspiration to me, man, is watching the growth of Dave Sims' uh, drawing ability. Uh, over the years with uh, with Cerebus, man. This guy started doing this comic, 77. At a certain point within the first, you know, couple of years, is like, I think I'm going to give this a go. It'll be 300 issues. At a certain point, I'm going to do it on a monthly basis. And he fulfilled that. You know, I was... I was rooting for that dude when, when I was a kid, like uh, when I was introduced to his stuff by way of Spawn. Uh, and, you know, he's in essentially the home stretch at that point. I was rooting for uh, like I wanted, I like the idea of a single person making 300 issues of a comic. Uh, so we'll take a look at issue one. We'll read through that and then take a look at, at, the, at the final issue. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, what I would add to that is Cerebus historically. You know, it's it's one of those, like, I think of the self-publishing in the direct market, and it's like the Peenies with ElfQuest, Jack Katz with First Kingdom, and Dave Sim with Cerebus. Yeah. And there are ads to that effect. Like, in the very early days of the direct market, these were kind of like your alternatives to Marvel and DC that comic shops, you know, burgeoning comic shops were able to pick up. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting just that history, too, because... There are times when Cerebus is one of the hottest books in comics. Yes. You know, like like there are stories of him having the uh, the penthouse suite at San Diego Comic-Con, you know, because like that's kind of the position that he was in whenever Cerebus was at the top of its game. I knew people in college, like uh, painting majors that didn't really read comics, but read Cerebus. You know, it was, um, I don't want to conflate it with uh, Love and Rockets, not that impact. But it was a comic that was very different. And when he was at the top of his game, you know, like the church and state kind of run, I think people read Cerebus and took it very seriously as like, this is some interesting comics. Like, this is moving comics in some directions that we haven't seen before. Yeah, yes. Yeah, Including the, the film book collections that we're going to look at here today. Uh, that was innovative. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, in fact, they had to create businesses around it, you know, like other books that... Dave Sim published were affected because he wanted to kind of use his own platform to sell 
these these phone books and like look at that this is about 25 issues mm-hmm. worth of material in the in this sucker when high society comes out like he wants to he wants to distribute that basically himself through the back pages of of cerebus and uh good old Geppi, good old tony soprano there in baltimore <laughs> uh he he didn't like that idea man he, he wanted his hand in the pie you know the guy who says that he has a benign monopoly uh <laughs> sort of uh tried to flex some weight and and cause damage to like puma blues i think was one of the yeah comics. that was the book in the crosshairs yeah that was negatively affected uh and you know what there's a big history of that kind of stuff happening just in media like never work for the label that has like the main that's owned by the main artist because they're the top of this mm-hmm. pyramid and uh if they rustle mtv's feathers or something maybe your music video ain't gonna play yeah you're the pawn you're the foot soldiers you're just another dollar in in that dude's you're pocket expendable. totally so like this comes out at a perfect time 1977 uh the talk about the what are the marvel books that are interesting unique and and pushing outside to the wider culture you have conan you have howard the duck it ain't a duck it's an aardvark uh, Aardvark Vanaheim, wisely titled, because the double A's ensure that you're going to be at the front of the distributor books. Genius. Mm-hmm. And uh, we see the imprint of uh, Barry Windsor Smith's artwork on a history of like 1980s black and white comics. Definitely. And worth pointing out, this is your first phone book collection. How quickly... You know, Cer- Cerebus evolves pretty fast. I mean, we could, we could, we could chart it immediately. So, like... So, like, this is our first uh, Cerebus, you know? Like, you go into issue two, like, that's, well, that's still issue one. But you go to issue two, that snout's a little smaller. You go to issue, say, maybe five, first appearance of Jocka, getting a little smaller. I would always be confused because, like, you'd see the spawn Cerebus, and yeah. it looks, you know, like, like once they figure out what he looks like, that's what he looks like. Totally. And, I, I mean, look. But you go back and start at the beginning because you're a completist. You want to get issue one. You want to get a reprint of issue one, and he looks totally different in the beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, and there's a history of that with, like, like every character. But, as you can see, he is who he is pretty pretty quickly by by the end of this man he it's it's pretty solidified yeah you have a stylized cartoon character by the end yeah the, the resemblance to an aardvark is garfield does it exactly you, know, you can see garfield's evolution is very similar exactly man so let's uh let's crack the books man and take a look at uh issue one a lot of controversy around issue one of cerebus cartoonist kayfabe is jim rugg and Ed Piscor, and the best way to support Cartoonist Kayfabe is to buy our the books that we make. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Cartoonist Kayfabe is Ed Piscor and Jim Rugg, two working cartoonists. The best way to support Cartoonist Kayfabe is to buy the books that we make. And here's what's available from Ed Piscor. WYSIWYG, Portrait of a Serial Hacker, is about the history of computer hacking. X-Men, Grand Design, the, uh, the the beginning of the Grand Design franchise, starts with X-Men. This is a complete retelling of the history of X-Men. The first 30 years is one epic, continuous story across three volumes, or in one giant, oversized volume, if you can find that one. Uh, seems like it's constantly out of print, but a beautiful volume if you can find it. Hip-Hop, Family Tree, this is a history of hip-hop. As the title suggests, four oversized volumes, treasury-sized editions, telling the history of hip-hop through comics. Uh, One of your most popular books, Ed. 
And your current book, Red Room, The Antisocial Network, available now in print wherever books are sold. This is a collection of the first season of Red Room Comics, collecting four issues, beautifully reproduced with some great bonus material here in the back of the book. And starting in March, the next season, Red Room Trigger Warnings will be coming to comic book stores. This is the cover to look for. And due to some uh, issues at the distribution level, this may be the rarest of Red Room comics. So look for this one in March. And here are the covers to keep your eyes peeled for. That's your main cover. This is a variant by Ed Piscor, a variant by Peach Momoko, and a variant by yours truly. These will be in comic shops March 9th. Books of mine that are available right now, The Plain Janes, the first American young adult graphic novel, 500 pages of a bunch of high school girls who get together and start doing art around their community, a la Banksy, and get in all sorts of trouble from uh, teachers to the local police and of course parents and some of their fellow students. Uh, 500 pages perfect for the young adult reader or young artist in your life. Street Angel, Deadliest Girl Alive. This is my collection of Street Angel comics published by Image Comics. Eight complete full-color stories featuring the Deadliest Girl Alive, the Princess of Poverty, the Homeless Ninja on a Skateboard. And coming in March, Cartoonist Kayfabe Month, by the way, everyone, is my next project, Hulk Grand Design, with variant covers by Peach Momoko, Marcos Martin, Cartoonist Kayfabe's own Ed Piscor, and... Hulk Grand Design Madness coming in April, covered by Jeff Darrow on that one. And you can see the main covers here in the background. This is a retelling of the history of the Incredible Hulk, 60, celebrating 60 years of Incredible Hulk history and comic books, 500 issues, 10,000 plus pages, distilled down into two oversized, action-packed issues, perfect for the longtime Hulk fan or the first-time comics reader. And now back to our regular scheduled programming. Jimmy, this is where you come in with this right here. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. All right, all right. So there have been some archival uh, reprint projects, you know, lately about Cerebus and trying to kind of update it to a more digital-friendly world. And one of the things that came out, the secret history of the counterfeit Cerebus Aardvark number one, and it's outlined here. 2,000 copies of issue one printed, which pretty small if you become successful and you're doing reprints. Well, of course, uh, cut to 1982, five years later, some dudes find a stack of Cerebus number ones at the flea market. Ten of them sell to the local comic shop. Go down the road, they found 20 more. They sell to the next comic shop. In all, about 2,000 copies of a counterfeit Cerebus number one distributed in the uh, in the early 80s there. Um, it's fascinating because, like, we've printed our own comics. There's no secret to this, especially a black and white comic on newsprint. Any Any printer out there, any web printer out there can make these. So if you got a guy that works there pretty easy to bootleg this could do the same thing with the teenage mutant ninja turtles and i think there may have been a counterfeit turtles number one if memory serves so you had that risk because one it's not that expensive and it's not really high tech to recreate one of these things yes you just need that surreptitious printer uh and listen man down the street there's an offset printer uh, working here's the thing like i first heard about knew about the cerebus the aardvark counterfeits in the price guide portion of wizard magazine and even those are worth money 
Yes. Even the counterfeits are worth 40, 50 bucks like at, at those times. Yeah, and you can see, I'm trying to think of what all's in here. The, the back matter of this book, you know, it kind of does a deep dive into this, but you see like there's concern, you know, whether it's Comics Journal talking about this and the risks, but even like mainstream media was looking at this, you know, like a newspaper article, a hard look, phony funnies or no laughing matter, because it's not just Cerebus. Like it's, if you can, if you can forge a copy of Cerebus number one, you can forge a copy of virtually any comic book and, uh, you know, even forge signatures and stuff here. So this was a real thing in a collector's world. Like the idea that somebody can just make a bootleg version and pass it off as the real thing. That's dangerous for a collector who's maybe spending big money to get one of these things and then finds out it's copy yes this, this right here is funny to me man this triggers me to the very first new york shows that, that i did when i was uh, at the at the cuber school just went as a as a fan you know just going to art school didn't have a table or anything and uh it was like a church basement kind of uh endeavor and there were uh pages there that were so clearly not mike mignola like it was mike mignola but like so clearly not Mike Mignola with Mike Mignola's signatures and shit on it, and I just couldn't believe it. Like, like I felt like, is does everybody is everybody having a stroke around me that this is even on this dude's table that that for like nine hundred dollars? Yeah, right. And I'm like, this is not Mike Mignola. But listen, I'm in New York. I'm in a town that I don't know anybody. I ain't saying anything. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. It's uh, it's 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 an interesting thing, and you know, like people that argue about CGC and stuff. This is their this is their counter argument. The defensive of those kind of like uh, certifying collectibles or whatever. I was at a comic shop two weeks ago and overheard a conversation with a guy saying that if he gets signed comics, he gives them away if they don't have a certificate of authenticity. Different I, world. I got some Frank Miller signed stuff that I got from Ides for a dollar. <laughs> I yeah, I used to find that stuff a lot uh, because guys would sign page one. Yeah. So, you know, exactly. if I'm pulling stuff out of a dollar bin, you know, you, you get home and look inside and realize like, oh yeah, I've got a signed American flag. Yeah. Yeah. And it looks like the real signature too. Mm -hmm. So like for fun, man, we're going to look at this, uh, by the bi-weekly joint. Um, these are neat. I don't know how many of these were published, how many issues, you know, were reprinted like this, but there's always a lot of ancillary materials. Yeah. Uh, you know, I guess whatever Dave had on hand, but reprints everything. So like a copy of the, uh, the editorial letter. Yeah. Um, you know, from that, from the first issue. Yeah, for sure. Then this is the inside cover yeah. of, the, of that joint. Circulation, 35,000, man. That's that's nothing to sneeze at, dude. Nin yeah, 1988, I think, is the date on this one. And uh, doing 30,000 black and white book in 1988 of a book you've already drawn, so now it's a reprint, that's a good paycheck. Two of these a month on top of your regular joint. Yeah, got to be near the peak of, like, Cerebus, probably, in that 80s uh, window. So, as you could tell from page one, we are firmly in Conan territory. Absolutely. With us, with Cerebus, uh, the aardvark here. Uh, and you see the inking ticks of uh, Barry Windsor Smith mm -hmm. in, this, in this piece right here. And it is... It is a Conan comic with this Erzatz Conan, which happens to be an artwork. It's cool to see panels like this, which I think point out Dave Sims' uh, design sense and, and just eye. Good storytelling, yeah. man. Great and storytelling in this thing. If you read, you know, like he's done a lot on self-publishing and getting, you know, how to become a cartoonist and stuff and puts in the time, a big believer in putting in those time, putting in those thousand bad pages and stuff. And I think you see a lot of that here like this is a pretty accomplished comic it's satisfying read you know like like this first round of uh, cerebus comics uh, before high society they're all one and done so there might be like a, 
a continuing issue or two, but uh, you got 25 solid comic book stories in, in, in this thing, man. Uh, they, but they are, you know, it's about storytelling uh, in, a, in a big way. You know, like the art is a little bit clunky in spots, but the storytelling stuff is, is, is all there. Um, these backgrounds, I mean, you see these in uh, Red Nails, mm -hmm. you know, this kind of grid t texture and stuff. So they're on the hunt for a, a special flame jewel. Got to fight, ward off some shadow demons, get some fun sword play in there, dude. That's yeah, awesome. that's cool. That's that, cool. That little piece hacked off there. Yeah, I don't know if it's a necromancer. It's some kind of wizard that is protecting this jewel. And so that's what they're getting or like what the wizard's throwing at them like a shadow creature. Right. And we're going to see a bunch of those and we're going to see what a what a great warrior Cerebus is that he's able to foil. Good explosions, huh? It's strong all around. It's good black and white art, and it's good page layouts and stuff. So, uh, pro tip for the for the new cartoonists out there, man, uh, you, you do a search on uh, Amazon for Mister Thrifty uh, is the skeleton that all the old uh, cartoonists like had on deck, so that you can make sure that your bone structure is all there. Had a big conversation with uh, Jeff Darrow about the Mister Thrifties uh, over the, the the past week, man. Used to see him in uh, like your science biology class at school or in your art class. All, all illegal, all illegally obtained, man. Well, if they're real. If they're real. <laughs> if they're real, you have to like notify authorities when you get rid of them. I had uh, I had one pass through from a, uh, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, at a certain age, the skeletons may be real skeletons. Just pulled out of like Indian rivers. <laughs> I don't know where they come from, but. Yeah, they're not, uh, you can't just throw those out. Not ethically sourced. And you see some sign of what a comic is as well. You know, like these solid black backgrounds, you know, it's like you're still doing a lot. Like if you want any hope of this being done in a regular monthly or bi-monthly schedule, like you got to cut some of those corners. Yeah, absolutely, man. And, and this kind of pace, this is a Neil Adams kind of pace with these long uh, verticals. It looks good. It pays off. It's part of the gimmick, too, because he's trying not to see this thing that he's fighting because he believes it's like the sorcerer's sorcery. You know, like you're seeing this thing, but maybe it's not real. Right. All right, man. We're getting to the trippy sequences. This is fun. Fun drawing. Fun to look at. Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. Genius. Hard to draw, man. One line out of place, you fuck it all up. That's true. And it doesn't look fucked up. And it works as a gestalt. It works as a whole. Mm -hmm. That's a Neil Adams. It feels like a Neil Adams thing. Having this continuous image, man. Polyptic. With these uh, characters coming up, that's uh, you would see these beats <laughs> in BWS. Definitely. It's uh, it's not a bad comic by any stretch. Right. But it's stylistically very different than what he goes to. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's he's leaning hard like this. He's going out of his way to draw like Barry Windsor Smith with these weird proportion faces. It's it's interesting how influential Barry Smith was when he would have these like weird ticks of like putting these eyeballs real close together and just because it was different people seemed to gravitate toward it or something yeah, because it looked very raw. You'd have the other page of like the monster or the castle or something that was amazing and you'd never seen before in a comic and then you'd have the person who was wrong but if the person's not wrong I don't know if you can be influential like you almost have to have those idiosyncratic ticks in your style if you're going to have people copy you right otherwise it's like you're just copying good drawings right 
but so many like like Eastman and Laird have mm-hmm. these proportions. So many of the black and white comics that we look at, they have these these equine humanoid faces on their guys that is directly linked to uh, Barry Windsor Smith. So here's where uh, we see the 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 cunning nature of Cerebus the Aardvark, where he could tell that this is some sort of um, magic. This is some sort of optical illusion. So. It's like that uh, that great episode of, of The Simpsons. I'm going to walk like this, and if you're in front of me, it's your fault. Uh, closes the eyes, swinging the sword, back and forth, back and forth. Uh, who's the man behind the... Pay no attention to the man behind the cloth. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, Wizard of Oz. Exactly. You know, yeah, like yeah. We're exposing this guy behind his illusion. Yeah. Uh, attention to lettering, oh, yeah. which is something that is becomes a huge staple of, uh, of, of Dave Sims' Cerebus work, and that's present here in the first issue. Plucks, plucks that bad guy like a chicken. This is a nice design piece. There's just that background kind of wafting through. Yeah, yeah, and, and once and again. Using some different textures and stuff. All still BWS textures. He's very gold-focused, this young Cerebus, man, this young warrior. He's a mercenary, so just hook me up with this pouch of gold. Yeah, 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 your ten, ten pouches of gold. Yeah, these dudes are like, man, this jewel's worth so much more than that. And he's like, nah, that's the deal. That's the deal. Yeah. And then you realize that, well, they realize that the jewel was also an optical illusion. It's a walnut. Yeah. Always funny uh, when they'd show Cerebus riding, like his back legs are just splayed out and he's kind of bouncing on the top of the horse. Never like, sitting on it. The legs are way too short to wrap around a horse. And it, and listen, it implies motion in a great way. It does. It's sort of the car principle of like, get those tires off the ground, get Cerebus bouncing off the saddle. Exactly. These comics also, like when it's steeped in its Conan energy, it's, uh, it's very much like the Conan paperbacks where like you pick up the next one and he's a part of some like rogue pirate group and then you picked up the next one and he's part of like a warring country uh so that's 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 how this stuff plays out man how about this other canadian comic books so this is a reprint from from issue one other canadian comic books that are available i have auric con number one i have that i might have fantasia number one as well I was looking at that and i was like maybe i should try to pull these out and i was like i'm not digging these out That go go back one. This is interesting. Gene Day, who um, we know from like Masters of Kung Fu, died young but was really phenomenal cartoonist. Uh, did a Star Wars portfolio that had to be destroyed when Lucas found out about it. Wow. So I think like only you know one we saved one for himself or whatever. But uh, I guess saw Star Wars and was like, I'm gonna do a portfolio of this. Amazing. Yeah, I'd be I'd be curious to see some of those. PO Box three zero seven one. And these are your uh, trade, the the phone books as they were known. Uh, Look at the headache of this, man. You know, you got to take freaking credit card, Kerchunk machines. Ready to look at 300? Yes, hit it. 25 years later. Yes. This is page one of uh, issue number 300. And you could see Cerebith, Cerebus, a little little weathered. Yeah, and at some point in uh, in the story, you know, it was revealed that Cerebus would die... Uh, alone and unmourned and so we kind of knew the setup for uh issue 300 we kind of knew where it was going to go yes you know he laid out whenever he said it was going to be 300 pages that it was going to be the death of the character and uh one of the uh big changes background artist gerhardt joins him 
um, pretty early on in the Cerebus run. Church and State era. Yeah. Second tra trade paperback of Church and State. Gerhard starts to show up. And I can remember reading, I think it was a Comics Journal interview with Gerhard, and he would talk about like his techniques for drawing these backgrounds, which sometimes featured really complex perspective, but also that he would hatch in this way where he would like 45 degrees, you know, turn your hatching lines, depending on how much hatching you want, how dark you want. So like here we have you know, four or five sets of hatching lines compared to some places where like a light gray, it's maybe just one one or two sets of lines. And a lot of his hatching, it's about color rather than fading the grays, you know? It's, it's largely about color and more often than not. He would also build sets, build backgrounds mm -hmm. uh, from what I remember. Those Canadian guys and building their, their towns. Yeah. Um, interesting Cerebus aged. You know, like we were talking about how like within a, a dozen issues or so, it's sort of like the aardvark has become the cartoon character. But now here we are at the end, you know, like this is your Cerebus normally, but at the end it's, he's kind of this old weathered wrinkled up form. And uh, this is simply life flashing before, exactly. before one's eyes. You know, this is some proto, like pre-comics Cerebus that we don't often see. The warrior version. He's, he's uh, not, showing us that snout you know this is his way of show of showing that era of cerebus without showing us the off-model guy even hides his nose behind a shield uh but he's still playing with the four like this is a different it's not exactly what cerebus solidifies into um but it's from that first phone book worth of uh cerebus comics you know this is the high society right. stuff this is when he becomes uh, prime Minister, becomes Pope. That's the church and, ch and state era. And just look at this bag of bones, man. Yeah. It's like real pathetic, like no dignity. Those two eyes, you know, like like they're, they're off, right? It's almost like his face is caved in on one side. Heck of a drawer. Definitely. Look at the different screen tones you know like these these zoomed in screen tones really interesting for another effect he's never really done that either like he, he would do uh close-up shots of cerebus here and there but he would never never had the idea to use like a weird screen tone for that and we see the life go out of the eye that's amazing yeah imagine if you saw that in a script absolutely and, and you know it's that little tiny i was staring at this last night trying to figure out like how does he do this and i swear it's that white highlight just disappears That's and when it. it's gone it's really like an abyss isn't that like one of the first things that you learn uh when drawing one of the first observant things you do when you're watching cartoons is like the second you put that little glint mm -hmm. in the eye it becomes lifelike yeah it's 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 the first eureka moment of a young artist is to put that little highlight in the eye and you're just like whoa what did i just do so you take it out and now you got this desiccation and it's cool, you know, the other formal element on this page is these are in a panel border. You know, like that's a, that's what's happening. That's the now. And then all those moments of the life flashing before your eyes around it as he's dying is the softer panel borders. Yeah. Which is the mark of Sim the thoughtful cartoonist. Yeah, and, and this is, you know, this is Sim's life before his eyes, you know, like every era of this comic you know he spent a lot of time at the drafting drafting table this came out in like the early 2000s yeah and i'm not looking for a uh, a fleischer kind of lawsuit over this but sim exhibited you know i i think he was viewed a certain way in the comics industry based on everything he had done 
you know, uh, quite a career, but not one without controversy everywhere. And I remember as this was approaching the end, it was kind of like, man, I hope that he kind of survives the end of Cerebus. Dave Sim, I mean, because like a couple years earlier, Charles Schultz had died on the, on the, you know, the day before the last Peanuts ran. And this was so big. This had been going for 12 years before. This was a teenager before I started reading comics. Right. So like, you know, to, to then like over a decade later be wrapping up, it was kind of like, what do you do? What is Dave Sim going to do after this? Absolutely. It was a strange kind of event. And we see the vapor, the ectoplasmic vapor coming from this desiccated bag of bones. Yeah, and it's not just vapor. That's your Cerebus foot. You know, like it's it's forming into oh, right, like yeah. his spirit. Yeah. And there we go. Ghost, ghost Cerebus in... in uh, like this is what you hope for, right? That that like uh, when you come back, you come back at like your your prime your prime version of yourself or something. That's true. He is in good form there. And then we spend page after page of like the light is coming. Interesting hatching it makes you wonder like what the division of labor between Gerhardt and uh, Dave Sim is this right there, because you don't recognize the marks or like it might even feel more um, Simish. Yeah, it could be. It's possible it is uh, Dave Sim, because there are some different marks there. This was a, a strange page, I think. It makes a lot of sense. It does. You know, you get, you get your Supporting pantheon of, of everybody from from uh, over the years. How many roaches do you, do you spy? Yeah, right. There's just one. Elrod. His Red Sonia character. Yeah, man. <laughs> Very prominent. Jaka. I bet everybody pronounced her name weird. Jacob. Let's hear it. How you say it? Probably, probably a Jacob. I would have thrown in there, maybe. Hmm. Is that God? I think that's his buddy from Guys. Ah. I think. I would get little pockets of Cerebus, you know, that you'd end up with for whatever reason—a block of them at a flea market or something like that—and it would always be like. It was such a random way to read, like, oh, there's six Cerebuses. Right. Of them just sitting in a tavern drinking beer and playing that, that, uh, that pickleball or whatever that thing was. Yeah. You know, you're seeing the influence of um, the religion that, that Dave, I don't know, found, invented. Spent a lot applied. of time by yourself inside your head, man. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and you're seeing that, you know, like that really, I think, influenced the last maybe five years or so. It was kind of what these latter days, a lot of them dwelt on. Yes. Even with the lettering, there's that lettering you were speaking of. One of the great hand letters in, in comics. A uh, advocate for the Hunt 102 pen nib, which would be a departure from issue one, you know, if you're thinking stylistically of comparing the two, um, became... You know, that, that pen became like a default tool pretty early on, and you see it in the fine lines. He would talk about going through pens and buying them by the boxes and throwing out like one out of two points uh, because of the quality of the pen nib. Yeah, yeah. In his guide to self-publishing, he, he was uh, very famous with saying like, listen, get one of everything. Get one of every nib. Test those things out. Furthermore, get one of every Crescent illustration board. I yeah. think that's what he would use. Like, he would use Crescent illustration board, the real thick stuff. So imagine you have 10,000 pages, and in in this closet over here, like, I have, uh, I did um, a book with Harvey Peek, or 150 pages, and it takes uh, four or five um, postal boxes to uh, just warehouse those 150 pages. Yeah. How about 10,000? 
crazy. It so, really is. So there it is, man. There's a, there's it's the end of our guy. Yeah, quite a journey. Yeah, heck of a facility. The guys the guys level of craft just just amplifies over time. Man, you do anything every day for 25 That's years. That's really the key, I think. Is that that everyday system, you know, because there's no lag. It's not like you show up at the drawing board the next day and have to like shake off the rust. There's no right. rust if you're doing it every day. Yes. And you'll hear artists talk about it. If they have a long weekend, there's rust for a couple hours. <laughs> you know, it may not be too bad if it's only a few day layoff, but uh, yeah, you do it every day for 25 years. It's a system. Got my hands on this trade not too long ago, man, uh, to complete the to complete the run. Had to give it a go. Uh, you don't see these in comic shops any longer in, in, in a big way, you know, like it takes a big footprint up mm -hmm. in, in a, in a retail space. And, and it does seem like comics retail, uh, brick and mortar is becoming sh smaller and smaller, it's just shrinking more and more. Uh, there's more and more product being put out there. And it seems like, you know, the du jour stuff is, is what gets the, the primo real estate and not 16 volumes of these old books and with you know five or six of them being telephone book sized but uh yeah it's a cube you know all those uh shelves that have like the square the square cubes uh you'll fill up one of those cubes with it i i sold mine um you know i had a full run of the phone books and i didn't think i was going to reread them and they do take up a lot of space so i got rid of mine uh several years ago in my in my Oh, I hate to call it the great purge. My, right. my regretted ever since purge. Yeah. Um, and I knew a friend who had a comic book shop and he tracked sales very closely. You know, what I think of as like the new model of comic shops. And he said he had the, the set on the shelf for a year and, you know, didn't sell one of them and ended up putting something else in that space. That's what, that's what every uh, retailer said, man. Like, like uh, th this, this was the hot, the hot property for a while, but um, it, it's, it's that, give away the razor, sell the blades thing. Like when the, it was coming out in issues, it was just that constant reminder on the new racks that these things existed. Um, it's a statement. Like when you see all of this, it catches the eye from a distance. They looked good too. You know, like that's a pretty striking image, I think for a cover and for black and white, it's, it's again, pointing at Dave as a good designer there. Um, but you're right about the, if you're coming out with a monthly book, this is the way you catch up. Yeah. Because if you're on issue 230, people don't want to go buy 229 back issues for one thing where are you even going to find a comic shop that has those in stock and then what do they cost these trades were brilliant he kept them in print and it was like hey you're a new reader here you go buy four of these volumes and you're up to speed you get the whole story yeah i got about 12 of these for christmas one year and it was to keep you busy it was after uh spawn spawn 10 came out like spawn 10 came out that year and on my christmas list that year I'm trying to think this is the sixth printing um, here's a story that I think I read in the back of issue 300 in the back matter, I believe. And it is that, uh, you know, we've been covering Neil Gaiman and Todd McFarlane's dispute on that Spawn issue. And, and we've looked at all those Spawn writers issues, about a hundred thousand dollar check everybody got. Yeah. Um, Sim sent his to a charity. Yes. So. Yeah, for sure. No, uh, no lawsuit there, but I think he's reprinted it. You know, like I think, uh, the way he interpreted whatever deal with Todd is I can print it. You can print it. So I think there have been Dave Sim editions or maybe they're forthcoming or something. Of, of the Spawn? I think so. I feel like I've seen, yeah, like now everything feels like a dream because people email us messages and you see stuff online and I'm trying to figure out if I've actually seen it in person, but I feel like there was a Dave Sim produced version of that, of that comic. 
I maybe it was all that. black and white. I don't know. That's fantastic. I have, to, I have to dig around now. Now I've maybe said something that's not true. Not I, sure. I gotta go look in the vault edition and, yes. and, and, and check those pages, man. Uh, you good to go? I am. Kayfabers, like, follow, subscribe to the YouTube channel. Hit the bell. We'll notify you when new vids are available. What's out there, Jimmy? Hulk Grand Design. Coming to your local comic shop in March. Tell your local comic shop to reserve a copy. Tell them which one you want. They can still pre-order those. There's four great covers to choose from. Get all four. Then you won't have any buyer's uh, regrets or remorse. And you can join me on patreon.com slash jimrug to see how I made Hulk Grand Design, to see some of my original art and behind the scenes of uh, my process. Red Room Trigger warnings coming out in March. Uh, Murder on the Dark Web for Fun and Profit. Four issues are going to come out on a monthly basis for the Trigger Warnings season of Red Room Comics. Murder on the Dark Web for Fun and Profit. You can read these comics uh, today at my Patreon, patreon.com slash edpiscor, three bucks for the archive there. You get to the links for pre-order, ordering, and checking out the Patreon at my link tree in the description below this video. What else, Jimmy? Subscribe to the Cartoonist Kayfabe e-newsletter at the links below this video. You can also find Cartoonist Kayfabe t-shirts and merchandise at the links below this video. That's another great way to support the Cartoonist Kayfabe channel. Jimmy, given those marching orders, we'll be on our way. Make more comics.